So the millennium, chapter 20, introductory remarks. How important is this anyway? Does it really matter? I know Christians that go for 50 years, they don't know the three different views of the millennium, and here you are, most of you young. Hopefully after tonight you will know the three views. It's hard to find somebody that will teach it to you. It's hard to sit down and find one work that will explain it all. So hopefully tonight we can do that. How important is it? Well, it's funny. Everybody says, oh, the millennium is not important. I had two jobs I was applying for at Christian colleges as a business professor. I, well, I'll tell you the names of them. One of them is uh, Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. I was so qualified for this job. I looked at the job description list, and I said, I feel sorry for anybody who's competing against me. God, please have mercy on them. <laughs> well, it turns out that I was told by the head of the theology department that because I'm not pre-mill that, my teaching there would be detrimental to the very foundation of the college. Now, that means they wouldn't let Augustine teach there. John Calvin couldn't teach there. Martin Luther couldn't teach there. Neither could I. Not that I'm anywhere in that category. But you see what I'm saying. They say, they say it's not important, but oh, all of a sudden it's detrimental to the, to the college. Then there was Talbot Seminary, not Talbot Seminary, Biola College. You ever heard of that? Well, they needed a business professor. So I applied, yes, we like your resume, please apply. So... Uh, they gave me the doctrinal statement. Not only did I have to believe in premillennialism, I had to believe in the pre-trib rapture theory, none of, both of which I don't agree with. So I said, am I going to be teaching eschatology in the business class? Do you really care about that? Oh, yeah. So people say that it's not important. Folks, to a lot of Christians, it is important. So you might as well get ready. Uh, this has nothing to do with the preterist-futurist debate. People, all, I hear this all the time, like back in my church in South Carolina. Are you an all-mill or post-mill? I tell them I hold to the preterist view of Olivet Discourse and Revelation. They say, are you all-mill or post-mill? I say, it has nothing to do with the preterist futures debate, but nobody can seem to understand that. Logically, there's nothing to do, so let's forget that when we get to the millennium. This has nothing to do with pre-, mid-, or post-views of the so-called Great Tribulation. That is a futurist problem. I'm not a futurist, so I don't care about whether Jesus comes back before the seven years, before he comes back, in the, before the seven-year tribulation, in the middle of it, or at the end of it. I don't care because I, I believe in a past tribulation, eighty seventy. all right? So we're not going to worry about that. We're trying to make this simple. I believe in Occam's razor. The simplest view is the best. Now, when we get to the views of the millennium, I'm going to give you three views, basically two views, really. And I'm going to ask you, which one is simpler? Usually, the simplest view is the best, Okay. And I've already told you that interactive Q&A is more important tonight than the recording, so we're not going to worry about that. Now, let's start with verse 1. Then I saw, that's John, John saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, that angel is Jesus. He's holding a key of the abyss. The abyss is hell. We see in Revelation 1.18, John said, I was dead, but look, I am alive and forever. Or Jesus said this, I am dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, because he was dead and rose again from the dead. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So there we see Jesus in charge of hell. Okay? But now in Revelation 9.1, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that stands for the devil that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. So now the devil's got the key to the abyss. So how can the devil have the key to hell, and how can Jesus have the key also? Everything the devil does, he's under the sovereignty of Jesus, or God the Father. How about in Job, remember? That's right, because God said, 
See what you can do, Job. Work him over. You know, you can do all kinds of stuff to him. But one thing you're not going to do, you're not going to kill him. Remember that? So, yeah, the devil works, but only under the sovereignty of God. All right? So, so at any rate, Jesus has the key of the abyss, which means he can control the devil who's in this abyss. And he has a great chain in his hand. Now, this is a, a vision. Now, Jesus doesn't go walk around with a chain in his hand. This is in John's vision. All right? What's he going to do with that chain? Verses 2 and 3. And he, that's Jesus, laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, let me stop right there. This binding right here excites mountains and mountains of controversy. Thousand of years, that's the millennium. Even more controversy. Theological libraries are filled up with the books that people write about this. I'm going to try to explain it to you. I'm going to try to give you all the views of it. Then I'm going to try to give you the correct view, i.e. mine, <laughs> so that uh, you can deal with this. All right? Now, the devil is bound. And then Jesus threw him into the abyss. That's hell. Shut it and sealed it over him. For what reason? So that he would not deceive the nations any longer. So what is the purpose of this binding? So that what? The purpose of the binding is that he will not deceive the nations any longer. All right? Is the devil deceiving the nations now? You say yes, you say no? All right, Jesus started with 12 disciples, maybe 70 if you count the 70. He started about a couple hundred in the upper room. There's over a billion today. Billion Christians. And that's not counting the Christians that have died in the last 2,000 years. The devil deceiving the nations any longer? You can't find a nation on this planet that any people that believe in Jesus. I've seen them all over the place. I've seen them in Africa. I've seen them in China. They're everywhere. Like fire ants. We're all over the place. Okay. So that's, that's the point. Now, I'm, t- I'm, I'm teaching you this here from the point of view of my millennial view, all right? Now, I realize that the other views are going to say it differently, but I'm, I'll get to those in a minute. But right now, this is what I'm saying. This binding is extremely important because a lot of times people see that bi- bound and they say, well, that means the devil can't do anything. Well, yeah, the devil can do things. Listen, if you decide to get... Every on Monday night do Ouija boards, on Tuesday night do tarot cards, and then get involved in uh, soul slits travel and maybe sleep paralysis and new age stuff, read some crystal balls and get involved in homosexuality the next. Yeah, the devil's going to work you over. But if you're living a normal Christian life, the devil ain't got nothing on you. Nothing. And I'm going to show you he is bound. So that he will not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. That may, and I'm going to take the thousand years to be the church age between the first and second advent. And I'm going to use the term the inter-advent period. That means between when he was in a manger and he grew and he got killed and resurrected. First century. Second advent is when he comes, physically returns to the earth. All right. Between those two times, first advent and second advent is the church age, which is the millennium according to my view, which we'll talk about more in a minute. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, we're going to see at the end of the millennium, there's going to be a war with Gog and Magog. We'll talk about that. That happens at the end of the millennium, end of the thousand years. But until then, Satan is bound and the gospel spreads. Now, I'm going to give you some scriptures that show beyond a shadow of a doubt that the devil is bound. And it should encourage you 
if ever you run into somebody that's demon-possessed or is having horrible nightmares or is all freaked out because of the drugs they did or whatever, or they're demon-possessed, you don't have to worry about that. Matthew 12, 29. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property, Jesus says, unless he first binds the strong man? The strong man in the parable, of course, is the devil. The house is the body that the devil's in. And then he, the person, that it, the, the exorcist who's binding the strong man, will plunder, plunder the house by taking all the demons in the house and the body and casting them out. There it says right there, so how can we say the devil's not bound? He's bound, right? Just because he's here doesn't mean he's not bound, all right? Let's go to Luke. I can send everybody in the church all my slides if you want, would you? Um, I'm going to have to give it to Steve, and he's got all your email addresses, right? And I'll do that. All right? Um, let's look at Luke 10, 18 and 19. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, his disciples, I was watching Satan. This was his disciples after he'd sent them out on a mission trip and they were out casting out demons everywhere. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So while, he, while his disciples are casting out demons, Jesus is saying, oh, there's the devil. Falling to the ground. That means he's lost his power. Jesus says, behold, I've given you authority to trade on serpents and scorpions. That's Christians, his disciples, have authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, which is the standard expression for demons, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. So, if there's a demon that walks through that door tonight and starts terrorizing you, you need to be worried? No, absolutely not. John 12, 31. Jesus says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So when is the ruler of the world cast out? Now, not 2,000 years later, in the future, now, the devil is bound. He's lost his authority. He's cast out. Here he says he's disarmed. Jesus triumphed over him, Colossians 2.15. When he, Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's a standard expression for demons, he made a public display of them. Jesus made a public display of the demons, having triumphed over them. He disarmed them and triumphed of them. And folks, there's a lot more scriptures like this. You get on the mission field, and they are demons everywhere. I mean, we just had a, a woman from India whose daughter is having internal uh, intestinal problems, and she's convinced that one of her family members has put the evil eye on him, voodoo. I know in China there were people, non-Christians would tell me about people doing weird uh, demon-possessed type stuff in a Buddhist temple. On and on and on. They're everywhere. But you don't need to worry about them. Hebrews 2.14, second part of the verse, through his death, Jesus' death, he might destroy the one holding the power of the death. That is the devil. Destroy. Now that word destroy could either mean obliterate or it can also mean uh, deprive one of the power of. Either way, the devil cannot kill us anymore. 1 John 3.8, second part of the verse, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. So I don't know why when we look at Revelation chapter 20, verse what was it, verse 2, the devil is bound. Why do we have such a hard time in saying, well, no, the devil's not bound. Yes, he is. He's bound. Especially when it comes to believers. Now, we're going to, I'm going to give you a chart of the two basic views of the millennium. Now, later on, I'm going to end up saying there's four views, but just to keep it real simple right now, to start out with, two basic views of the, of the millennium. Now, the 
predominant view today is the pre-mill view, premillennialism. Now, I'm going to give you that view first. I don't hold to this view, but I'm in a, unfortunately, a small minority, especially in the South, especially in America. Most Christians that think about this issue are pre-mill. And I'm going to try to show as we go through this that I don't think it holds water. But now, before you decide what's right or wrong, you've got to know what the views are. So we're not going to talk about who's got the best view, all right? We just want to understand what the views are, and that's no small task. All right, here's the pre-mill view. There's the cross. Jesus comes, first century, dies in 30 A.D. This is supposed to be blue. You can't tell it's blue. That's when Jesus returns, right here. We don't know when that is, but it's sometime in the future. Now, this line here is, a seven, year, is seven years before he returns, and futurists like to say, okay, he returns, gets Christians pre-trib right here and takes them back to heaven. Then he comes back at the blue line and starts the millennium, the thousand years. Or Jesus returns in the middle of the tribulation, brings them back to heaven and comes back to earth, gives them a new body, resurrected body, and then they start in the millennium. Or Jesus just returns right here, brings all the departed saints, their spirits, back to earth, raises their bodies, and then Jesus and his saints enter into the millennium right here. Now, why does the term, why is it pre-millennial? Because Jesus' return is pre-before the millennium. Does that make sense? Before the millennium, all right? Now, the key thing here, when Jesus returns, he resurrects all dead believers, Right here, there's people that have died in Christ. When he returns, he raises them up, and so they have their glorified, immortal bodies right here at the beginning of the millennium and all the way through eternity, okay? As soon as you get lost, I want you to stop, all right? Stop me. All right, now, at the end of the millennium, the dead people are raised. Why are they, why did they have to wait to the end of the millennium? All right, if they die here, when Jesus comes back, God's not going to raise them up and give them a glorified body, is he? No, because they're bad guys. They're unbelievers. So they stay in the graves until they're raised at the great white throne judgment here at the end of the millennium, and they're thrown into hell. Okay? So that means on the pre-mill view, Christians are resurrected pre-mill, and the bad guys are resurrected post-mill. I shouldn't say post-mill. That sounds like another view. All right. All right. The Christians are, are raised before the millennium at the beginning of the millennium, and the non-Christians are raised at the end of the millennium. All right. Is everybody with me? Oh, good. Now, notice there's a gap between the resurrection of the believers and the resurrection of the unbelievers. That gap's very important. All right. Now, that's the pre-mill view. Now, I'm going to... And, and, and this chart is talking about timeline, all right? It's not talking about the nature of the millennium. It's talking about the timing of the millennium. So let's look at the non-premillennial view. And I, this is my made-up word. There's a couple of other millennial views that aren't premillennial, But the basic, the two non-premillennial views are amill and postmill. But we don't need to talk about that yet because both of those views have the same timeline. Jesus comes back, the thousand years is symbolic of the church age, 10 times 10 times 10, 10 is many, 10 cubed is many, 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 many years, the church age, 
Then Jesus comes back here, and of course you can do the same thing with the tribulation if you want. Jesus comes back, and right here we go into eternity. There is no thousand-year millennium after Jesus returns, because the thousand-year millennium is already taking place between the first and second advent. Okay? Still with me? All right. On the non-premill view, when are believers resurrected? When do they get their resurrected bodies? Right here at Jesus' return, right? When do the non-believers get their resurrected bodies? Same time. It's a general resurrection with the non-believers and the believers, and there's no thousand-year gap between. Now, you've got to hold on to that because I'm going to go through the Scriptures and I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you a simple question. Where's the gap? You cannot find that gap in the Scriptures. It's not there. And that's why, one reason why I'm not pre-mill. Now, let's... Let's break it down a little bit more. Two subdivisions of premillennialism. Historic premillennialism says that in the millennium, Jesus, Jesus rules over the church. Dispensationalist premillennialism, which is the kind that you see mostly today, especially in the South, in the millennium, Jesus rules over Israel. So now we're talking about the nature of the millennium is different. Who is it that Jesus is ruling over? So let me go back here. So, a dispensation will, will say that Jesus rules on the earth over a Jewish kingdom. And historic pre-mill people, the reason I say historic, because dispensationalism didn't show up till the 1830s. So, for the first 1830 years of church history, nobody ever heard of dispensationalism. But they had heard of premillennialism. That's called, uh, that's called historical premillennialism. Jesus comes back and rules the church, the church, not Israel, for a thousand years. Jesus returns before the millennium. Okay? All right, now, if you want to look at two subdivisions of non-premillennialism, we got amillennialism and postmillennialism. Now, just as a spoiler alert, this is my view right here, the correct view. All right? All right, but the two views are not too far apart. They also differ on the nature of the millennium, not the timing. The timing is exactly the same. Amils often say that the millennium is in heaven. So but in the inner advent period between the first and second advent, the millennium is up in heaven with the departed saints. It's not even an earthly thing. But all of them don't say that. Some of them say it's on earth. They're usually more futurist than post-mills. They don't have to be, but for some reason they are. So they tend to think that all that great tribulation stuff and the, the blood in the sea and the, all that stuff... Is still ahead of us. All right, all right. That's a very good question. Let me finish this, and I'll get to that. Um, they're usually more pessimistic than post mills. Why? Because post mills don't have to worry about the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, because that's already happened, according to the preterist view. You know. Well, I, I made a mistake. I said I should not talk about preterism and post mills because they're not related. But typically, post-mills tend to be preterist because if you put all that judgment in the past, that leaves it available to you to be optimistic about the future. But it doesn't have to be that way. It just tends to be that way. All right? So usually, I'll mill people a little bit pessimistic. 
because all those future events that we still have to face are bad. Now, the term, where does it come from? It's a misnomer. Because ah means no in Latin. No millennium. Well, if we look back at our chart, are we going to say that ah mills have no millennium? Their millennium is right here. Now, it might be in heaven or it might be on earth, but it's there. So ah mills, not really, there's not a good term for it. But I think where the and I'm not totally sure about this, I think where the term came from is because so many ah mills were put in the millennium up here on the earth that people said, well, they don't have an earthly millennium, so they're ah mill. I don't know that for a fact, I'm just guessing. Let's look at post-millennialism. The millennium is on earth. It's usually more preterist than ah mills. It doesn't have to be, but it usually is. In fact, in my case, I'm preterist and also post-mill, and, you know, that, that happens a lot. They're usually more optimistic than ah mills because, as I said, all that judgment's already happened on Israel. Bad events are in the past, all right? But to be honest with you, if you'll just, this is it. If you'll just learn this right here, these two, that takes care of so much. The other stuff is just variations on the theme. All right, so now let's start with verse 3, excuse me, verse 4. Verse 5 and verse 6, these are three of the most controversial verses in all of Scripture, all right? And we're going to go through it slowly, and stop me if you don't follow, and I'm going to ask you questions as we go through. Verse 4, I, that's John, saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I'm going to assume those thrones are the 24 thrones around God the Father on His throne, 12 Elders representing the tribes of Israel, 12 elders representing the apostles. And so this is Israel, the new Israel now. They had, were given authority to judge. That shows that the church has every bit as much authority to judge as Jesus does. The head judges, the body judges. Remember, we, I gave you two verses one time where Jesus rules with a rod of iron and the church rules with a rod of iron. All right, so the church has the authority to judge. Continuing in verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. This is referring to the souls in the fifth seal who were below the altar, the bronze altar, and they were crying out for vengeance. Remember that? And they were probably Jewish Christians who had been murdered by the evil Jews. They had not worshipped the sea beast or his image. Remember the land beast was trying to get the people of Israel to follow after the Roman Empire. Don't follow the Messiah, but follow the pagan Roman Empire so we can keep our nation. But some Christians refused to do that. They went ahead and followed Jesus. They had not worshipped the sea beast or his image. Had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. Mark shows ownership. They said, no, we don't belong to Rome. We belong to Jesus. Alright, so now that is not so hard. They came to life. And reign with Christ a thousand years. Oh, we got two issues here. First of all, who is the they? Well, the they obviously is referring to martyrs. But now we're talking about every Christian in the world when we talk about millennial theories about what's going to happen with judgment and resurrection. Most of the commentators say that these martyred souls are just a subgroup, a subset of all Christians who are going to come to life and reign with Christ a thousand years. And that's futurist commentators, preterist commentators. I think that makes a lot of sense. Because otherwise, why would we just be talking about a, a small group of believers instead of all of us? Okay? They, they're sort of like a proxy for the rest of us. Now, 
That's a minor point. Now, here's the big one right here. I got it in all caps. They, those who were dead in the grave with their spirits separated from their bodies, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. What does come to life mean? You've got two options. What can come to life mean? Let's see if you can think about it. What, what, what does come to life? What does that mean? All right, that would be resurrection, right? Physical resurrection of your body. That's one option. What's another option? Have you been born again? Were you born again by the Spirit? So you came to life, right? So there are your two options, all right? What does come to life mean? Now let me give you a preview here. If you say that came to life means physical resurrection, then you are pre-mill or non-pre-mill. Which one are you? Pre-mill. And I'll show you why in a minute if you don't see it. But if you say that they came to life spiritually and got born again, then you are non-pre-mill. All right, since I'm post-mill, I believe this is talking about spirit. I, I came to life, I got born again and reigned with Christ during the all these people who came to life and got born again reigned with Christ during the church age in our Advent period for a thousand years. All right, let me, let's go back and let's look at the pre-mill view. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So let's go back to our chart here. On the pre-mill view, if a dead Christian here came to life right here, is resurrected right here before the millennium, and then he reigns for a thousand years. See how that works? Now, verse 5 starts out with a parenthesis. Parentheses are not in the Greek text, but every English translation that you will ever find has a parenthesis there and there, halfway through the verse. But the way you said that sounded like you were saying that that verse, part of that verse 5 is not in the Greek. Nope. That's nope. Like. The parentheses are not in the Greek. Ah, okay. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. But the text, of course, is in the Greek. But all the translations put a parenthesis there. And if you don't put a parenthesis there, you will be so confused that you won't know what your own name is by the time you get to this passage, I promise. You have to have the parentheses there. All right? So when it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, this, and then it says this is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is not referring to the rest of the dead coming to life. The first resurrection is referring to the coming to life at the end of verse 4, right here. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. All right? So coming to, to life with Christ and reigning with Him for a thousand years, that is the first resurrection. You got that? Don't forget it. Coming to life with Jesus and living for a thousand years, that's the first resurrection. Now let's look at this parenthesis. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So who is the rest of the dead? Let's go back to our chart. On the pre-mill view, the rest of the dead, the, the Christian dead came to life, and then the rest of the dead came to life at the end of the thousand years. So that's the non-believers, right? So on the pre-mill view, the rest of the dead come to life here. Now how about on this view? you got Christians coming to life and living for a thousand years. The rest of the dead will be non-Christians coming to life at the end of the thousand years, they come to life right here, raised in their bodies and thrown into the lake of fire. So that's easy, actually. On both views, the rest of the dead is non-believers. They're physically resurrected and thrown into the lake of fire, and there's no controversy. 
Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection, physical resurrection if you're pre-mill, spiritual resurrection and being born again if you're non-pre-mill. The second death has no power over them, over these believers. What's the second death? Well, actually, in chapter 21, it says, point blank, I don't have the verse in front of me, unfortunately, but it says, when they're thrown in the lake of fire, this is the second death. So it's when you get thrown into hell. That's the eternal death. So if that's the second death, what's the first death? Yeah, when you die. Now, I will say this. I was tempted to say that the first death was when we're born. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins, right? You could say that's the first death. But nobody does. Everybody says the first death is when you physically die and get put in the grave. So the first death is when you go into the grave. The second death is when you go into the lake of fire. Do Christians suffer the first death? Mostly. Do Christians suffer the second death? No. All right. I don't know what that says. (laughs) Anybody got a Bible? Okay, so nothing controversial there. They will be priests of God and will reign with Him for a thousand years. All right, again, what that thousand years is depends on what your view of the millennium is. All right, any questions so far? You're doing real well so far if, you're not, if nobody's lost. Yes, sir? So, I mean, it's deep and confused, but, but during that thousand years, are we saying that people, that Christians don't die? <laughs> All right, that's, that goes to the nature of the millennium, and I'm going to talk a lot about that in a minute. Uh, the nature of the, the pre-mill millennium. Now, the nature of my millennium, the post-mill millennium, is you're in it, and I'm in it, so you know what it's like. You know, this is what it's like. This is it, yeah. But I get to that in just a, coming to life, what that is and what the first resurrection is. That's the whole crux of the debate. That's the key. That's where you're going to, you know, a lot of other stuff... You can agree on. All right, now, this is another page that screwed up the, the spacing of it, but let's look at some parallelism here. here. Pre-mill parallelism. The first death, you go into the grave. The second death, you go into the lake of fire. Is that any different than non-mill parale- the non-pre-mill position? First death, you go into the grave. Second death, in the lake of fire. There's no difference. So things have gotten a little bit simpler now. Now, here's the parallelism of pre-mill position. The first resurrection is physical. That's when Jesus first comes back to the earth. And it is a physical resurrection of believers only. The second resurrection, at the end of the millennium, it's physical, but its physical resurrection is of non-believers. Not believers. Okay? Nobody's lost? All right. Now, non-premill parallelism is this. You have one death. That means when you go into the grave, the first resurrection is spiritual. This is why I like to say the first death might talk about your spiritual death. You're born into sin and you're dead as soon as you're born because the first resurrection is spiritual. You're resurrected out of that death. But most people don't say that. So Now, according to non-premill position, amill and post-mill, the second resurrection is physical, just the same as the pre-mill position, but it's a physical resurrection of both non-believers and believers. Does that, do you remember that? Okay. Good. So the difference here 
is the spiritual. First resurrection is spiritual, where this first resurrection is physical. That's the difference in non-premill and premill. And the difference as far as the second resurrection, it, it includes believers uh, on the non-premill position, but it does not include believers in the premill position. All right. When I give you this this PowerPoints, when I email it to you, everything is right there on a couple of slides on a very, very complicated subject. So now let's look at some scriptural arguments against premillennialism. Where's the thousand year gap between the second coming and the final judgment? That thousand year gap, where is it? Matthew 13 30, let both, that's the weeds and the wheat, let both of them grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but store the wheat in my barn. Wheat stands for what? And the weeds stand for? Do you see any thousand year gap between the judgment of the weeds and the um, storing of the wheat in the barn? The saving of the wheat? Is there any thousand year gap between the two? It happens right at the same time, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like my position? The non premill position? Notice also, gather the weeds first. On the premill position, it's the wheat. The Christians that are, that are raised first, and then a thousand years later, the non-Christians are raised. This parable has it exactly reversed. Moving on, Matthew 13, 47 and 48. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. The good fish stands for? And the worthless ones stand for? Non-believers, you see any thousand years between those two? Is there judged or saved in this case and judged in that case? No, there's no thousand year gap. Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep standing for the believers. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on his left, that's the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So at the separation of the sheep and goats, the eternal separation, Christians inherit the kingdom at the same time that the non-Christians are thrown into eternal fire, into hell. Do you see any thousand-year gap between the two? Yes or no? No, thank you. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's no thousand-year gap between going away into eternal punishment and righteous into eternal life. John 5, and this is my favorite verse. I just used this on a pre-mill guy at my church. Uh, he said he was going to look into it, but he never did, because there's no answer to it. John 5, 28 and 29, Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. In the graves, that's talking about physical resurrection, not talking about spiritual those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, a physical resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment, a physical resurrection of judgment, great white throne, judgment, thrown to the lake of fire here, going to the eternal state here. Where's the thousand-year gap? You see any thousand-year gap? It's not there. Acts twenty-four fifteen. This is Paul talking to a Roman official. Paul says, I have a hope in God, which these men, referring to Pharisees who are accusing him, which these men themselves also accept, that there is going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. A resurrection, one resurrection, 
of the righteous and the unrighteous. There's no thousand-year gap between the two. It's a general resurrection. In fact, that's what non-premills call this, a general resurrection, because it, it encompasses the general run of mankind, believers and non-believers. There's no gap. Romans 2, 5 and 8, But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed, Paul says, He, God, will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. So those who are doing good works get saved, eternal life, but wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth, but are obeying unrighteousness. Right there at that same judgment, eternal life and wrath at the same time, with no thousand-year gap in between. It's not there. First Corinthians 15, 22 through 24 is my last verse about this. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So let's, let's go back and look at our chart again. We got Christ the first fruits is resurrected here, right? And then those who are his at his coming. So Jesus comes back. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, The dead in Christ shall rise again. So that's Christ is the first fruits. He, he rose in the first century. Then the dead in Christ at the end of the thousand years, at, at the end, they'll come to life. And then what does our verse say in 1 Corinthians 15? Then comes the end. Does it say, then comes the millennium? Then comes the thousand year period? It says, the end. That's it, folks. Does everybody understand that verse? You got, the, you got the timing in your head there? All right. Now we'll go to Gerald's question and somebody else's question. What's it like living in the millennium? And because the situation in the pre-mill millennium to me is so nutty that I've rejected the, the position regardless of the scriptural arguments. All right? Now, a necessarily logical conclusion of premillennialism, which they do not deny because they cannot deny it, is that in the millennium you will have married mortals, mortal human beings who can die and who can get married and have babies, just like us. They're going to be living together with single people who are immortal, have their glorified body, they can't die. Now, I used this at the Lord's Supper one about a month ago on a pre-mill here in this church. He didn't, he didn't have an answer for this. But, it did, but finally, when he realized the logical conclusion of what I was coming to, and he understood what I was talking about, I said, that, that doesn't bother you? He said, no. I also used this argument on a friend of mine. I, I don't know whether he's pre-mill or not, but he, 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 he didn't seem to think that was a problem. I think it's a problem. But let's see how we get there. All right? Let's go back to our chart again. That's not it. All right, Jesus comes back right here, and when he comes back, you're going to have four types of people. You're going to have dead non-believers. You're going to have living non-believers, right? You're going to have dead Christians, and you're going to have living Christians, right? What happens to the living Christians? 1 Thessalonians 4, what happens to them? In a twinkling of an eye, what happens? They're changed into their immortal bodies. All right, so the living Christians go into the millennium immortal, glorified. Right? How about the dead Christians? What happens to them? They're raised. They're raised with an immortal body. Right? 
So they go into the millennium. All right, so you got dead Christians and living Christians. They're in the millennium, hot dog, immortal. Now, how about the dead, Christ, uh, the dead non-Christians when Jesus comes back? What happens to them? They stay in the grave all the way to the end. They're raised up at the end. So, so far, no problem. But what about the living non-Christians? The living non-Christians who are alive when Jesus returns. Is Jesus going to kill them and put them in the grave? They just walk right into the millennium, mortal. They don't get their bodies changed because they're not Christians. you got mortal Christians living in the society with, more, with immortal, excuse me, you got mortal non-Christians living in the society with immortal Christians. Now, we know what Jesus told, referring to the Sadducees, about whose wife are you, whose uh, if you die, if a woman has seven husbands in this life, who will she marry in heaven? And Jesus said, ain't going to be no marriage in heaven. I'm assuming that's true in the millennium too. I don't know that. But hey, if you got immortal Christians, they're going to be getting married? What if you got a, a man that's got, had three wives? One, he's a widower once, twice, three. He's got three wives. Is he, going to get, is he going to be a polygamist in the millennium? No, he's going to be single, right? Because once you get into the future state, there's not going to be any marriage anymore. So they're single and immortal. Meanwhile, these unsaved mortal people are going to get married and have kids, right? And the immortal Christians will probably witness to some of them, and some of them will get saved. So in the millennium, you're going to have unsaved mortals. You're going to have saved mortals. You're going to have single people that are immortal all living in the same society. Do you have a problem with that? It It doesn't make a bit of sense. You're the first person I've talked to that wasn't that agreed with me. That that doesn't make any sense. I don't know why. I think it's because people want to believe the pre-mill theory is so bad that they just say, well, that's not a problem. Okay, so that's the first logical problem of premillennialism. Let's look at the next logical problem. Let's say that you died in the inner advent period between the first advent and the second advent. Your body's in the grave. Where's your spirit? In heaven. Is it nice in heaven? Are there any wars in heaven? Is there any death in heaven? All right, so Jesus said... (laughs) All right, so Nicholas, you're in heaven. Jesus says, Nicholas... Time for me to return to the earth. Second coming. Second return of Christ. Oh, you can communicate, I'm sure, you know, telepathically, yeah. So Jesus says, oh, it's time for you to come. And you say, okay, I'll come back to the millennium. You come back to the millennium. You're looking around and you see Jesus ruling with a rod of iron. This is the way the pre-mill people put it. But why? Because they're unbelievers in the millennium. Right? And at the end of the millennium, there's going to be a war with God and Magog. You're going to get to participate in a war. And you're going to get stuck in the camp of the saints and surrounded by all the evil nations of the world. You were sitting up on a cloud in heaven enjoying yourself. And now, now you're down here in the millennium having to fight a war. <laughs> Does that make any sense, though? No. Another logical argument. Jesus ends up defeated, has to be rescued. Now remember when Jesus comes back and sets up this future millennium, he's going to be ruling on the earth, right? He's going to be ruling with his saints on the earth. All premill people say that. Millennium, the millennium, according to the premill theory, is an earthly thing. So Jesus is on the earth ruling with his saints for a thousand years. And we'll continue with our verses here, Revelation 27 through 9. When the a thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. I'll talk about Gog and Magog in a minute. Just hold that. 
to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. That's obviously the church, the believers in the millennium. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. All right, remember, in this society, we got mortal people and immortal people. Are the immortal people going to be worried about a bullet getting shot at them? Are they going to be worried about a bomb landing on their head? They're immortal. They can't die. They're like in Groundhog's Day, Bill Murray. So why are they in the camp of the saints all huddled up with King Jesus? King Jesus is... I would assume he's immortal too, right? He rose again from the dead. He rules the universe. Oh, no, he's stuck in, in a battle down there in the camp of the saints, surrounded by all the nations of the world. Really? Are we really going to believe that? I am convinced that most female people never think about this. And so they just assume that it's true because somebody told them it's true. But if you think through it, it sounds like a comic book that's not consistent. All right. Now let's talk about Gog and Magog, these people who are going to show up, these nations at the end of the world. Now, futurists love to get on Gog and Magog. Oh my gosh, reams and reams of books. I've wasted half my life reading books about Gog and Magog. This is all you need to know right here. It's a frequent and a standard Jewish expression used to refer to the rebellious nations of Psalm 2. Remember in Psalm 2, why have the nations taken counsel against the Lord and His Messiah? Why have they do the heathen rage? You know that famous psalm. Well, all those nations that are taking counsel against the Messiah, the Jews, especially in the Talmud, they would say Gog. I don't know why, but that's what they used to refer to rebellious nations. And remember, this is what happened here. You got, where is it, uh, the nations, the Goim, the Gentile nations are coming after the saints. I got this Gog and Magog idea from this commentary right here, G.B. Kerr, the commentary of the Revelation of St. John the Divine. Let's go to verse 10, running a little bit late. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the sea beast and the false prophet are. The false prophet, of course, is the land beast. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I had something very impactful that I was going to talk about that verse that I can't think of what it is now. Oh, this, that reminds me what I was going to say. Um, these refer to nations, right? Sea beast and false prophet. Um, they've already been thrown in the lake of fire in chapter 19. Okay, I got it. I read yeah, right. And, but can nations go to hell? No, only individuals can go to hell. So this is just talking about their destruction, the end of them. Which, of course, they're gone now. Both evil Israel and also the pagan Roman Empire are gone. Now, there's one thing you've got to be careful here, is you've got tenses, time in the vision, and then you also got time on earth, which is not necessarily the same. I've, I've discovered that as I've gone through this real carefully, you know, sometimes you get messed up on that. Uh, when it said, and the reason I say that here, the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire. That's talking about in John's vision, the devil was thrown in the lake of fire. Okay. But does it mean that the devil is actually now in the lake of fire and is locked up forever and is never coming out? Hyperpreterists say, see there, John says the devil was thrown in the lake of fire, therefore he's in the lake of fire, therefore there's no demonic activity in the world today. Which is crazy. It's just totally crazy. So, when it says was thrown, that means in John's vision 
he saw the devil being thrown in the lake of fire, which was a prediction of what was going to happen in the future. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, this beast are. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place were found in them. There's only 15 verses. I'll be finishing just a little bit. Uh, the great white throne, of course, is the final uh, judgment throne. And him who sat on it. Now, who's that him? Most everybody says the Father, but I will make a case that it's Jesus sitting on that white throne. First of all, Jesus is sitting on a white horse in the four horsemen of the apocalypse, first four seals. He's sitting on a white horse, and right after him came what? War, death, and famine. The white horse, the, the, the black horse, the red horse, and the pale green horse, okay? So that shows judgment was coming. He was sitting in chapter 14, he was sitting on a white cloud when he had a sickle and he was reaping the, the people on the earth, the grapes on the earth, to throw them in the winepress of the wrath of God. Judgment. Throne. Judgment. We read in John five twenty seven, And he, that's God the Father, has granted him, God the Son, the right to pass judgment because he's the Son of Man. So that verse clearly says that Jesus has the right to pass judgment on non-believers. So that very well could be Jesus. Now, I'm not going to stand on a hill and defend it to the death, but it very well could be. Now, who's, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away? I guess this is what John saw in his vision. All the mountains and the trees just just flying away. Why? Because nobody can stand in the presence of the wrathful lamb who's about to judge something. You have to get out of there. Even nature has to get away. Decreation rhetoric, if you will, when judgment comes. Verse 12. And I, John, saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Now we're going to assume the uh, non-premial view that the dead and the righteous are standing before the great white throne to get judged at the end of time when Jesus comes back. Okay? They're there together. The righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. Now this verse is a little bit confusing because of these books. So I'm just going to give you a heads up here. There's books, plural. So let's just think of two books, plural doesn't say two, but I'm going to assume two for the sake of simplicity. And there's another book which was singular, was opened. And what you're going to see is before the two books, plural, you got the bad guys, the unbelievers. And before the single book, the book of life, you got the resurrected saints. All right? So they're all are standing before the throne. Why are they standing? Because they've been resurrected. That's what resurrected means. It means to stand again. The great and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural. That's the dead people getting judged in those two books according to their deeds. Notice, there's no salvation by works, but there is damnation by works. They're judged according to their deeds, the bad guys. There's damnation by works. Now, here's a question for pre-mill people. Why is there a book of life at the end of... I can answer that from the primitive view, but if you really want to make somebody think, why is the book of life open there at the end at the great white throne when there are only dead unbelievers that are there? There's no believers there, right? So what's the point of the book of life? Here's what a premill could say. Well, it's just there to show the dead, the unrighteous dead, that they ain't, they're not in it. In other words... Angel says, here's the book. You see your name in there, you turkey, you're going to hell. <laughs> I don't think that's a good answer, but here's a better answer. 
Remember I talked about those immortal people in the millennium? Remember that? Excuse me, the mortal people? And they don't get saved, some of them don't get saved. But some of them do get saved. So at the end, God's got to take care of those too, at the end of the millennium. And so that's why the book of life is for them. See, I'm fair. I give the other side a shot every once in a while. All right, we go to verses 13 through 15. We'll finish it up. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. This is just the idea of saying every dead, because most people die on land. But there's some people that die in the sea, sea battles. Death is a personification. Hades is the grave, and that's where dead people are. So death, Hades, everybody gives up their dead. Everybody is judged according to the works. Death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire. That means all dead people will suffer punishment in hell. This is the second death, the lake of fire. I said that was in verse 21, chapter 21. I'm sorry, it's actually here in chapter 20. The second death is the lake of fire, getting thrown in the lake of fire. Anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. Now, let's talk a little bit about hell real quick. This is a symbol for hell, right? Mark 9, 48, another symbol for hell. Je- Jesus says, their worm does not die. In other words, the dead body, the worms start eating the dead body and they just keep eating forever and ever. Isn't that a great metaphor, great picture? The fire is not quenched, so they're eating up with worms and they're burning up in fire forever, okay? That's hell. Terrible picture. But look at Matthew eight twelve. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever thought about this? How can hell be fire and darkness at the same time? Because fire ain't dark. You thought about it? Uh, typically, when you look at metaphors, you're not supposed to carry them from one metaphor to another metaphor to another metaphor, just like with parables, just like with visions and prophecies. And so the point is, is that hell's going to be horrible here, and it's horrible here. All right, I'm, let's do some application here. The devil is bound, so let's evangelize with confidence. He's bound for the thousand years, for the church age. We will receive a perfect physical body, so rejoice. In the final state, there will be perfect justice. The devil will be finally and utterly defeated and destroyed. So let's rejoice. Hell is real and you don't want to go there. Christians will be rewarded for their good works and physical death has no power over the believer. Now you notice all this is good stuff and it doesn't matter whether you pre-mill or post-mill. It still works. I'm sorry we went so long, but it was a hard one today. Yeah. Uh huh. So, so how are we doing? Oh, don't get me on don't get me on that. Because America's not doing too good. Yeah, we got to do better. Well, I mean, you know, I lived in China for 23 years, and I see people getting saved all over the place, and I come here, and Ravi Zacharias has, has got masseuses. You know, it's just hard for me. It's really hard. I have a hard time with what the church is doing in America. We need another reformation, and we need it bad. In my humble opinion. My focus is always on the gospel, the prosperity of the gospel, that the gospel spread. I mean, it's hard to get the gospel out to all those weird minority groups on the west end of China. I mean, I see people doing it, and, or down in Africa, like Michael Cooley, when he came here, went down to all those people drinking this crappy water and dying. You know, and he goes down there, and he builds a well, and then he witnesses to people. To me, that's the gospel. Get the gospel out. And there's a million people doing the gospel. We don't even know who they are. You know, and I think that's what we need to focus on to get the gospel out. Oh, let's pray before we close. 
Lord God, we do want to see the gospel, the progress of the gospel, the gospel spread. We want to live a kingdom life here in this life now as we are totally inundated by the filth of the secular culture. I pray that we learn how to be holy, that we learn how to be lambs in the midst of wolves, Lord, and that we learn how to be conformed to your image as we're transformed from glory to glory. I pray that you give us all our ministry that we need to do to be spreading the gospel. There's a million different ways we can do that, or either directly or indirectly. I pray that these young people over here find good Christian spouses so that they may establish Christian families, so that these families might be the salt of the earth and help preserve the earth and be examples to the world that's dying when people are getting... How many times have we seen people, Lord, that are saved because they saw a family and they never had a family and they say, oh, that's something I want. I just pray for that, Lord. I just saw a woman in Iran that's converted that way. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would please have mercy on the church in America. Please purge us for our sins. We know that judgment begins with the household of God. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would come and burn the chaff out of the church today, that we might be pure, that people are just playing around with Christianity will leave, and that the true Christians will be left behind and um, in the church and that we might, uh, we might have the mark of the Christian on us, which is love, and we might see a revival in this country because this country is dying, Lord. I just pray that you'd bring us back to life again through the power of your gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship. Reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.